0: Verse by verse, chapter to chapter, we've been doing the book of Ephesians since I think we started in September here, and uh, we're just continuing on through uh, each verse. Next Sunday, we're going to get into uh, a Christmas message, but this Sunday, we're actually going to be looking at some stuff, too, regarding Christ's coming, and this text sort of unfolds some of that for us as well. So in Ephesians 4, what we're seeing is, is we're really looking at this unity in this beginning part of the chapter. And, and in Ephesians 4, we kind of turned a corner because the book of Ephesians is neatly divided up into two main sections. Chapters 1 to 3 detail for us doctrine. Paul's laying out just really the groundwork for us of what, of what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And then we move from doctrine chapters 1 to 3 into chapters 4 to 6, which deal with practical stuff, application. We go from doctrine to duty. We go from where we sit in Christ to how we walk with Christ now. And this is kind of this turning point. And so Paul's been saying, listen, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What's the calling with which we were called? Well, it's that calling of being united together in Christ with all of the followers of Christ. We now make up a new body, the church. And so Paul is laying out how we walk worthy of that. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it looks like were to be unified And in verse four now, Paul's going to lay out for us seven components of this unity that are centered on the three persons of the Trinity very interestingly. So we're going to look at today in this section, we're going to see the uni- uh, the unity of the church, verses four to six, and then we'll look at the diversity in the church, verses seven to ten, the unity of the church and the diversity in the church. And so verse four, Here we begin to look at these seven components of unity. He says in verse four, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So the first component of unity is that we're one body. Recognizing that we together make up the church. And we're not just talking about this church. We're talking about the universal church. See, that's the beauty now of coming to faith in Jesus and being brought in with all of the followers of Christ is that we're put into this, this new body, a family. We make up a family now. A family that's so uniquely different, but so wonderfully united because of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your, your background. It doesn't matter your, your nationality. It, it doesn't matter your skin color, what you wear. Aren't you thankful for that? We don't have to have one service that's kind of like, you know, the... The, the ripped jeans millennial crowd or you know the second service that's made up of you know the middle-aged people the third it's like no we're all together we're all together in Christ we're one we're united we're one body I'm thankful for that there's an instant bond that you have is don't you find that when you go and you, you maybe meet somebody and you find out they're a believer You're like oh you're we're together we're family you don't know them, you don't know what what they're like, but there's an instant bond because you know and there's enough that bonds you just in Jesus that you're family together it's such a sweet thing Paul would say in Ephesians two verse 14, for he Jesus himself is our peace who has made both one and he's speaking of remember Jews and Gentiles and the Jews were the ones that thought they got the corner on the things of God, and Gentiles, well, let's keep them a little bit more at bay. We don't want to really bring them into what we're doing here. But Jesus says, no, 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 you are now one. I've come, and I've made both one. And if there's any group that would struggle over walking in unity, it would be Jews and Gentiles together. They hated each other. But Jesus, who himself is our peace, has made both one. So regardless of whatever differences we might have and understand the very common thing that we do have because our, our common ground far outweighs any kind of differences that we have. So we're one body. And Paul goes on to say in that verse, verse 4 that we're one spirit. There's one church, one body. And that's so because there's one spirit who indwells in the church. And that's the Holy Spirit that we're speaking of. You see, there's not a different power or force at work in various churches or in various individuals. You don't have one source of power and another person says, no. We're all of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And all those that call Jesus Lord and Savior, well, they're of the same spirit. We're all one together, no matter what church, no matter what background, denomination. It's the spirit that comes and unifies. And, And remember... God's not putting this, this onus of unity on you. He's given it to us through his spirit. Because remember what he said in verse three, just one verse back. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. In other words, it's there. It's there through the spirit. So keep it. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to manipulate it. You just Remember, you're of one spirit. You walk in the spirit, and you endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. So what does that look like if we're walking in these things? What does that look like? Well, I think Galatians 5, to 24 spells it out very clearly for us, the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, and that's, again, that fruit is singular. I think love is the key, and love is demonstrated through joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Man, don't you love being a part of a church where those qualities are evident? Does anybody not like, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kind? No. I think we're like, man, if I can see an operation, man, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be hanging out. And that comes about by being one body of one spirit. And Paul goes on to say, we have one hope of your calling. So what is this hope? Again, specifically with what Paul's been dealing with in Ephesians and in our context, the hope of that calling is that God has brought us all together as one in and through Christ. He saved us by grace through faith. He's made us alive in him. When we were dead and trespassed, and since he's made us alive, he's forgiven us, he's cleansed us, and so now we're now made whole in him, and we're brought together. God's not looking at certain people saying, I'll take you, I'll take you. Some, of, some people are wondering, like, Lord, am I, am I in? Is it what, can I, uh, can I come? Am I a part of this too? Or No, it's like, you have that hope of this calling through your faith in Jesus, and, and we all come together now as one. You don't have to look at yourself and go, I don't know if I really fit. No, if you're in Christ, you fit. You belong. That's the beauty of this here. And Paul prayed that you might know the hope of that calling. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, if you flip over just a a page or so, in Ephesians 1 verse 18, he says there, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That you may know, he says, what is the hope of his calling. Paul prays so that this isn't just something, you know, intellectually, but this is something, you know, personally and internally that you know this. Not just know about it, but that you truly know it. So as a result now, coming into this one body, in one spirit, we have a blessed hope, my friends, Hope of your calling is not just about coming in as one body now, where Jesus is gathering all people that believe in Him together, where there's common ground, there's unity, but also now we understand that we have a blessed hope. That whatever we might face in this life, that we have something far greater now awaiting us. Eternal life. Life in heaven with Jesus. No matter if 2021... Makes 2020 look like a day at Disneyland. We know that that's not where our hope lies. Our hope is not here. It's elsewhere. The hope of heaven. Peter would write about that in 1 Peter 1. Verse 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. To living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And he's got this... Just reserved for you. He's awaiting the day when he calls us home. That's our hope. Our hope is not in the things of this world, <clears throat> it's in what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has in store for us. Paul goes on to say, in verse 5, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So, one Lord, he says. Well, no, that's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. See, we all seek to follow him. Some people love to try to be the head. But no we have we have just one head. One Lord. One master is that that term that idea of Lord. It's Jesus Christ that we follow. We're not following one another. We're not following the trends of the world. We're following Jesus. And when we are all looking to say, I've got one Lord. We've got one Lord. It's Him that we follow. Guess what happens when we seek to follow Him? We find unity. We're on the same path, going in the same direction. We have one faith that, again, binds us together. Now, most likely, this isn't speaking of objective faith, that is the body of truth believed by Christians, but it's subjective faith which is exercised by Christians in putting their, their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord. See, there aren't different paths that lead us to the same place as many would love to say. Ah, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you know you're a, a good person and you do good and, you know, all paths eventually lead to God. Well, I mean, yes, all paths do lead to God, but there's only one path that's going to grant you righteousness before God and that is who Jesus Christ and faith in him because this faith now is saying I'm not trusting in myself I'm not trusting in my good works or me being a a good person I'm trusting in the good work that Jesus did for me by dying on a cross to forgive me my sin to pay the penalty for my sin and my trust my faith is now in what he's done when he is on the cross said it is finished he meant the work is is complete stop trying to add to it and to simply receive it by grace that's what jesus did for us that's the faith that we're to have and it's this one faith this same faith in jesus christ that links us together with other believers he says there's one baptism now there's a few different baptisms that are are mentioned in god's word we've got the baptism of john the baptist which was a baptism of repentance we've got examples of water baptism we've got the baptism of the the Holy Spirit. Many believe that what Paul is referencing here is he's speaking of water baptism. And that very well could be that certainly fits because water baptism becomes this outward, you know, symbol or act of that inward reality of what Jesus has done. We, we, you know, dunk people in the water because we're saying we're laying down the old life and we're coming up new, clean, refreshed. That's the work that Jesus did. We've We've laid down our old man. We put our trust in Jesus, and he's made us a new creation in him. Old things have passed away, but all things have become new. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. That's what Jesus did. That's what, that's what baptism represents and pictures for us. So that very well could be what Paul is talking about here. But Paul also writes about this baptism of the Spirit, not, not the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit in that kind of acts, you know, pentecost kind of way but look at what paul writes in 1 corinthians 12 verse 13 to 14 for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether jews or greeks whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit for in fact the body is not one member but many see to get into the church you need to be born again which means you're born of the spirit paul said that when you believe the spirit now fills you he writes in Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. See, when we become believers, we're given the Holy Spirit. It's like what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, you're baptizing the Holy Spirit. Now, I do believe in a subsequent work of salvation where, you know, you are... Receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling, not just the infilling, but the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. I certainly believe in that, what we read of in, in Acts. But I think Paul's talking about just the fact that when you become a believer, man, you, you are given this one baptism, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That links you again in your relationship with Christ. You're sealed, guaranteed that what God has begun, he will be faithful to complete. And then Paul writes... The seventh component here is one God and Father of all. And that speaks of our Heavenly Father, Yahweh. And, and this is more than just being a, a Father of all humanity, as we kind of talked about uh, previously in our study in Ephesians, but this is more so speaking about being the Father of all that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, in His Son. And those that do, we become children of God. John 1.12 says, As many as received Him, to Him, or to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So, by faith in Jesus, you become a child of God. He becomes our heavenly father. Again, we're given that spirit by which we cry out, Abba Father. It's like saying, Daddy, we have a, a special now new relationship with the Father because of our faith in Jesus. He's the Father of all, He is above all, Paul writes. That means He's, he's sovereign over our lives. There's nothing higher, there's nothing greater than him. He's above all. He is working through our lives, and he's filling our lives with his presence. It says that he is above all and through all and in you all. Think about that. His presence now has been manifest in you through his Holy Spirit. We have this special relationship with our Heavenly Father now that we could never enjoy apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And as people are brought together now, these are the the seven components that unite us together now on common ground. When we look at this list of seven unifying elements, we see the Trinity is such an integral part of that list. The one body of believers is vitalized by one spirit. So all believers have one hope. That body is united to its one Lord, which is Jesus Christ. By each member's one act of faith. And its identity with him is depicted by one baptism. One God, the Father, is supreme over all, operative through all, and resides in all. Incredible that all seven components are united in and through the Trinity. Now, when we look at at this great list here, there should be no reason for disunity in the church. Amen? You with me? Y'all here still? See, the fact is that Again, we love to kind of point out the differences that we can have with people. And, and not just within, you know, individual churches, but among the church at large. And we can look at another church and go, oh, look at what they're doing. Or look at what they're not doing. Look at what they, how they have. And, and we, can, we can look at all these things. And, and we can find differences. But what we have in common is far greater than any differences we have. And what we need to do is unite over what we do have in common. Unite over what is true. It, it, uh, most certainly, anytime that something is going contrary to God's word, that's where we have to take a stand and go, no, I, I, I disagree with that. And we need to, you know, wrestle through that. But, but as long as we're upholding God's word and we have these things in place, that there's so much more that unifies us than could ever divide us. When we're unified... And walking in love with one another, guess what happens? God's glorified through that. I pray that we see that more and more happening just in our lives, in our church. Churches in Langley, churches around the lower mainland, churches around the world that we're just walking in unity and love through these things that we see Paul spelling out for us in his word. So we've seen the unity of the church. Now let's look at the diversity in the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So after Paul's been highlighting, you know, this great unity that we have, that we enjoy in the church, he now moves to show how this unity does not mean conformity. To be unified doesn't mean that we all do the same thing or we all look the same way, we all dress the same, we all talk the same. That's not unity. It's just weirdness. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't don't want to see that. Unity does not mean conformity. There's great diversity within the church. And we begin to look at the wonderful variety and individuality within the unity of the spirit that we enjoy. So Paul here lays out, shows how each of us are graced with gifts that are in line with the measure of Christ's gift. And we talked about that word according to a lot, right? We, you know, we've seen this throughout Ephesians a few times that uh, he's done these things according to the riches of his grace, that kind of thing. Here, it says that we've been given according to the measure of Christ's gift, or the grace was given according to, not, not out of the measure, right, of Christ's gift. It's according to, in other words, it's, it's inexhaustive. It doesn't end. There's so much richness there that we can never get to the end of it all. There's an unlimited supply. He's given us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, grace. John Stott said this, Saving grace, the grace which which saves sinners, is given to all who believe. But what might be termed service grace, the grace which equips God's people to serve is given in differing degrees according to the measure of Christ's gift, which is in verse 7. The unity of the church is due to charis, God's grace having reconciled us to himself, but the diversity of the church is due to charismata or charisma. God's gifts distributed to church members. That word there, grace, is the Greek word charis. And the word gifts that you would see like in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Talks about the the gifts that we have. That word gifts is the Greek word charisma. So we got charis, grace, we got gifts, charisma. Grace is what unifies us, but charisma, gifts, is which is what exemplifies this diversity by which we operate in the way that Christ has gifted us. Now, each of us have, you know, natural abilities. It's important that we don't kind of look at these gifts as just, you know, natural abilities. We all have natural abilities that causes us to kind of maybe stand out from others, right? Some of my natural abilities um, would be, uh, um, it'd be, uh, it's definitely not, um, you know, I think we all probably have something, but here's the deal. Here's the deal, is that natural abilities is not what we're talking about here because these are supernatural giftings that are given to us by the Lord to carry out our service, our work for the Lord, you see. And, and please understand, this has nothing to do with salvation. We, I hope we made it very clear that we're not saved by what we do and by our works. But Paul would say in Ephesians 2.10 that you are saved for good works, that we're his workmanship. So we've been saved by grace freely. Not of yourselves lest anyone should boast but we are saved now to do good works and Jesus enables us by supernaturally gifting us to carry out these works that honor the Lord and that build up and equip the church together therefore not your good they're not they're not to make us stand out but they're to make Jesus stand out in us and to be a blessing to his people here now, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. How does the believer discover and develop his gifts? By fellowshipping with other Christians in the local assembly. Gifts are not toys to play with. They are tools to build with. And if they're not used in love, they become weapons to fight with, which is what happened in the Corinthian church. Christians are not to live in isolation, for after all, they are members of the same body. Those words that we read in verse, at the beginning of verse 7 are important where it says, but to each one of us. You see that there in verse seven? Your translation might say it a little bit differently, but, but to each one of us. Paul didn't say to some of you, God's gonna supernaturally gift. Or to a few of you, you might receive something from the Lord. No, he says, but to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has graced each and every one of you to be an active participant In the body of Christ, his church, and he's gifted each of you to be that member that serves the church. Blesses and builds up one another to the glory of God. Carries out God's purposes in that. And the grace is given in proportion to the gift. If the Lord has a particular function for you, he's going to supply you with the grace to carry that out now. Again, grace means what? It means that unmerited favor, ultimately. Nobody can say, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not really worthy of doing that. Oh, I couldn't really do that. You're right. You can't in yourself. We'll agree on that. You're not worthy, but God graces you to do so. It's an unmerited favor by which he calls you and equips you, he gifts you to carry out that role that he has for you within the body of Christ. And if he's moving you on to greater responsibility that might look rather overwhelming to you, guess what? He'll supply the grace for you to be able to carry that out to his glory so it's vital for the health of the church to see that we're all participants and we're all involved we're all part of one body dependent on one another each of us having been given grace according to the measure of christ's gift and regarding the gifts paul goes on now to kind of highlight not the gifts but the giver of the gifts now look at verse eight with me therefore he says when he ascended on high he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Paul is speaking here. When Christ died on the cross. He defeated sin. Satan. Death. And he's risen again. And as he ascended. He says he led captivity captive. Now we understand this picture here. Because it was a familiar picture. In, in Paul's day. In these times. Where the, the idea was a Roman general. That was returning from battle. Who would lead his captives with him. And he would come home. As, as he would come home, people would come and bring gifts to him. It's kind of honoring him as this victorious king. And Jesus is our victorious king. But understand something. It says that Jesus gave gifts. See, Paul is quoting from Psalm 18, or sorry, Psalm 68, verse 18, which says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. But Paul, now, inspired by the Spirit, he changes this a little bit to fit the context and, and reveal an important truth for us, that Jesus came to set people free and to bless them with gifts, not burden them with having to give. Jesus didn't receive gifts. He gave gifts. That's the difference here. See, our role in the church should never be seen as a burden to have to give. We've been blessed by receiving gifts. And as we begin to put them into practice, it's there that we experience the life of joy. Why? Because when we walk in line with what God has for us, when we follow in obedience to the Lord, and as He equips us, as we step out in faith, and be used of Him, you're carrying out His purposes, His will for your life. And there's no greater place of joy and blessing than when you are walking in line with what He has for you. This isn't something that Jesus says is a burden. I've saved you, so now I've got to put you to work. He says, I've saved you. And the greater thing is that not only does he save us, because I think if I was the Lord, I'd be like, I'm going to save you, but I'm also going to kind of just tuck you away in the corner to keep you out of trouble. Just stay over here. I'll take care of everything. Because I know what you're capable of. So just stay over here. That's kind of me. The Lord says, no, I'm going to save you. I'm not only going to save you, I'm going to use you. And there's gonna be a great partnership that's gonna take place by which you're gonna be blessed. You're gonna be a blessing to others. My name's gonna be glorified, and you're gonna find the greatest of joy when you're exercising these things for me and in me and through me. That's the blessing that we have as believers. Y'all still with me here? Everybody? Everybody at home still with me? Okay. All two of you. Right on. No, I hope there's more than two of you there at home. That's my little joke for you there. But Listen, he goes on to say here, and this is kind of where we get into some, some fun stuff here. Verses 9 and 10. We're going to end with these two verses. And they're, they're interesting verses. It says this in verse 9. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who has descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, again, that, those two verses can be a little bit Tricky. Uh, They're ones that have been contested and debated, no doubt. But understand something here. For Christ to ascend to heaven, it obviously is implying that he first descended. What are we talking about here? Well, many believe, you know, we're talking about the incarnation. This very time of year that we celebrate at Christmas when Jesus decided to leave, you know, the glories of heaven. I want you to think about that here because we can oftentimes get really wrapped up this time of year with gifts right oh i wonder what gifts i got under the tree right we can all get excited about gifts that we get there's one man that came to his friend said hey did you get your wife your her christmas gift yet and i said yeah the Guy said what'd you get her He said i i got her a, a a new bag and belt and the man was like oh all right i'm sure she'll be really happy with that and the, the husband said yeah i mean her vacuum's been kind of broken down for a couple of weeks so yeah all right those aren't the gifts you want to see, wives, I'm sure, but, but understand something here that we can easily get sort of very sidetracked, and I, I, want us to bring things into perspective again for us, you know, that Jesus, what he gave up for us when he left the glories of heaven, he came down to this world, and he could have come down as a king, he could have said, listen, I'm just going to come and do this work for you, but he chose to come in an even greater and more humble way. He as a little... Bay, born in an insignificant place of Bethlehem, born in a manger, a feeding trough. I mean, he came and showed us that he was giving everything up, but so that we could gain it all. And he came to this world into a broken, dark, depraved world. He clothed himself in, in humanity. He identified with us in our brokenness, in our in our pain in our suffering understand it's you know what jesus came into is not very much different from what you know we've been having to go through and what we've been experiencing we think man it's so dark it's so difficult and yet it's in that darkness that jesus wants to come and shine in and break through as he did in that first christmas there in Bethlehem and it's here we're reminded that he left it all he came and he descended down at that incarnation for you and for me to do a work that we couldn't do for ourselves don't let all that get lost in the shuffle at this time of year and he came down so that he could fill all things it says it happened in completion at his ascension the work was done he lived a perfect life he died a sacrificial death he rose again showing that the work was complete and valid And he secured eternal life for all that believe in him. And when he ascended, the Holy Spirit would then be poured out upon the church and would fill all things. Listen, we're complete in him today. He's not only gifted you with forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but he's gifted you so that you can be a service to him and enjoy walking in this fullness of life that he has for you. That's the life worth living. Let us not forget all that he's done for us. But these two verses, let me, let me give an alternate idea of what is being spoken of here. Because it was the Pharisees that came to Jesus, and they were requesting a sign. And, and Jesus simply said to them, Matthew 12, that no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jesus recorded for us a story in Luke chapter 16 of two men that died, a rich man And Lazarus. The rich man died and he's taken to Hades. But Lazarus died and he was taken to a place called Abraham's bosom. It was like this one area, Hades, was this kind of like holding place of the old, those that died before Jesus, right? And Abraham's bosom was filled with Old Testament saints, those that had faith but were awaiting the promise, you see. And many believe that what we're talking about here that when he descended in lower parts of the earth, that we're referencing this idea of of Jesus after his death, he went down into this place called Hades, or Abraham's bosom. Interestingly, Peter writes in chapter uh, 3, verse 19, 1 Peter 3, 19, that uh, Jesus went, it says, and preached to the spirits in prison. Many believe that he's speaking to either those in Hades to simply declare that, you know, judgment has come, Or he's preaching to those in Abraham's bosom to say, your victory has arrived. The promise is complete now. And he led captivity free. In other words, emptied Abraham's bosom. Many believe that's what is being referenced here. This great work of Jesus. And then he ascended far above all the heavens that he might again fill all things. Again, securing life for us, hope for us. That when we die now, as Paul would say, we from the bodies to be present with the Lord. That we have a blessed, a blessed hope in Him. He's made it all possible for us, my friends. And if you don't know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to put your trust in Him. There's no better life than you could live. There's nothing that this world can give you that will ever compare to what we have in Jesus. Because not only does He give us life now, but life eternal. We have fellowship with Him. We are brought into a relationship with Him because by our faith in Jesus and the work He's done for us, we're forgiven. And we're clothed in His righteousness by which gives us a proper standing before God today. That doesn't come through your works. Your ability comes through faith in Jesus. And I pray and encourage you, if you're listening today, whether you're sitting here or watching online, that if you don't know Jesus today, as your Lord and Savior. You put your trust in Him. You recognize your need. That you're lost in sin, but he came to forgive you and to cleanse you. And by putting your trust in him, you're forgiven, and you're brought into newness of life now, all by his grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You simply accept it. It's that free gift that he gives you. And as you're saved... As he fills you, he continues to work in you and use you as we're seeing here. And so next time we'll pick it up in verse 12. And we're not going to get into really the specific gifts that we see in Ephesians here. But we're going to get into the gifted people that God uses to, again, equip the church. And we're going to look at some wonderful things. We'll save that for the new year. And uh, next Sunday we'll be spending some time looking at uh, a great Christmas message here. So let's pray, worship team. Come up, we'll close with a song here this morning. Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done and, and accomplished for us. Thank you for the life we have in you, not just life now, but life eternal. And God, thank you that you've not just saved us to shelf us, you've saved us to use us, to continue to work in us and through us and use us for your purposes and glory. And what a blessing it is, Lord, to be in that place. So I pray that you continue to pour out that gifting in our lives, Lord. And may we be those that are exercising that, using it to your glory and to the building up of your church. Go with us now, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. May Let's stand together.